Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today has been described as a left-wing pinup by his admirers and a Marxist biker by his critics. Whatever your view, Yanis Varoufakis is the economist who dares to think, to challenge, and to speak his mind. As finance minister of Greece, he was catapulted onto the world scene as the man who stood up and said no to the European Union. The insurgent challenging the establishment and the bureaucracy of Brussels, or the havoc-wreaking economic enfant terrible, depending on your point of view. One thing, though, that all can agree on is that he divides opinion like a lightning rod. Always outspoken, his is a worldview that looks to turn what we know as the global world order upside down. Lightning in a bottle, then, and a thunderous welcome to Changemakers, Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's very good to be here. Now, we were just discussing, I first met you um, in Italy, and I remember uh, we had a lunch together, and I remember talking to you and thinking, this guy has got a determined sense of certainty about the world, a worldview that feels rock solid. I want to start by the what makes you tick, Yanis, in terms of where does that come from? Is it nature? Is it nurture? A little bit about where that worldview was formed. I'll tell you where it's all coming from, from a sense of deep doubt about my own views regarding the world, which is coupled nevertheless with a certainty that what the European Union was doing at the time when we met was just profoundly absurd, because it was absurd, and because they were telling me it was absurd too, behind closed doors. So, you know, when journalists like you ask me, where did you find the determination to oppose Christine Lagarde and Mario Draghi? Well, you know, behind the closed doors, they agreed with me. And let me just take this out of the picture of the frame. My no to the EU was a no of a Europeanist who cares about the European Union. And he doesn't say yes to things that are against the very interests of Europeans. But, but you know, I was reading this quote by Bloomberg. It goes, why does he make everyone so nervous? I mean, you've got this reputation as the person that was just not going to go by, you know, you weren't going to go by the normal rules. You were going to do it in a different way, in a much more confrontational way. I mean, there is a there is a Varifakis brand, isn't there, in terms of the confrontation, the struggle. Um, I, I guess the fact that, that sort of um, the old ways are no longer the, the future ways. Not really, Michael. Look, the problem they had with me was that I was a finance minister of a bankrupt country that was refusing to take another credit card on conditions of shrinking the incomes of the people who were supposed to repay all those credit cards. And I think that what really made them nervous was that I didn't give a damn about my career because I didn't care about being a minister. I, you know, I was elected accidentally. Uh, I would never have stood for parliament, let alone for the ministry, if Greece had not gone bankrupt. I had one objective and one objective alone, to restructure the Greek debt so that the people of Greece are no longer uh, languishing in debtor's prison. And I wasn't going to accept another credit card. And they could see that in front of them they had somebody who didn't really want to be prime minister, who didn't care about having the limo. One, one I, I, see, I, I've got some thoughts about, you know, I, I listened to some great um, stuff over the weekend, uh, you know, your, your appearance at the Cambridge Union and various sort of things like that. And I thought there are there are certain aspects of your character that I'd like to explore in terms of what gets you to today. And so obviously, I mean, I suppose the firebrand, you know, I mean, it was the it was the sort of it was the Sun newspaper over here, probably not one of your favourites that said, oh, well, Yanis Varoufakis, he's the, he's the Marxist biker, the leather jacket, the big bike, that there's an element there's an element of the bad, the bad boy, if you like, as part of that. I was then looking at your 
at your fantastic lockdown list. And, you know, there is the element of the Albert Camus quote that in the depths of winter, I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer. And I loved his book, The Outsider. And I was looking at, I mean, do, do you need to be outside that status quo? I mean, is that the thing that's sort of like, that? You, I mean, you famously said you'd write a resignation letter and have it in your um, in your inside pocket if you ever felt you'd become a politician. I mean, is that, do you need to be on the outside looking in, do you think? I have an, I have a, an urge, a great urge, to explore the limits of my knowledge or ignorance, for that matter. Uh, I have an uh, I hate being told that something um, is a particular way just because it is in a particular way. Uh, I always appreciated, you know, the scientific uh, way of doing things. You, know, you, you remember, on top of the Royal Society, the logo on no one's world, uh, not taking anything for granted just because that's the way it is. Uh, and in particular, of minimizing unnecessary suffering for people who are not privileged like I am, I'm very privileged. You know, I have a, I, I have the right to, to ride a motorcycle because I just love doing it, and I've been doing it ever since I was a student in England, and I'm still doing it, and I'm not going to apologize for it. Mind you, the, the youth of today think that this is a very conservative thing to be doing, right? <laughs> um, remember, the average age of bikers in Europe today is 60. You be, well, I was going to say you begin electric next year. I hope. I mean, but, but I mean, in terms of other parts of it, I mean, the dreamer, Homer's Odyssey. Star Trek, both journeys, both fables, spiritual growth, rough times, good times. Are you an adventurer in that sense, in terms of the way you look at life, do you think? I think we all are. I mean, I don't know anyone who is not fascinated by the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. I don't know anyone who is not fa fascinated by you know, the, the prospect of uh, exploring the universe. Um, I don't know anyone who is not fascinated by the prospect of understanding how nature works, you know, how COVID-19 works and how it can be defeated, how we can have green energy. I believe everybody is fascinated about all this, but I consider myself simply privileged to have had the opportunity. I was surprised that Star Trek, I mean, I, I mean, I love it. I mean, myself, I mean, but in terms of like the thinker, the philosopher, the, the finance minister, I mean, I was thrilled actually that you, I mean, I was, in fact, I've got to ask you, who's your favorite crew member or your favorite captain over, over the years? Do you have one? No, it's like being asked to choose between Beethoven and Bach. It's just impossible, you know. Um, <laughs> I think we we could have created front page news if it had been William Shatner. I think, Yanis. Uh, <laughs> I like Shatner, but he's, he wouldn't be my favorite. Uh, it's a toss up between Picard and uh, Janeway. If if you really push me down that road, but let me say that Star Trek for me is 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 a wonderful modern American, of course. Um, encapsulation of all the great philosophical questions of our time, like Plato asked all the important philosophical questions, and you know he didn't leave any in interesting philosophical question unasked, not necessarily unanswered, but unasked. Um, you know, Star Trek does the same thing, and if you think about it, you know, it's uh, it's a communist society, which is absolutely liberal. There is no drudgery. Um, you know, they, they have machines producing everything for everyone, replicators on the wall and so on. Um, and they have philosophical debates about, you know, the meaning of life and uh, the prime directive, about non-interference and tolerating even those that you can't stand, whose ethics you admonish. I, I mean, I'm wondering what Gene Rodenbury would be making of this, but I also thought that, you know, the element, you gave us this quote for the lockdown list that virtuous deeds are done for the hell of it and they feel divine. 
as a result. And that felt also quite Star trek in a certain way that actually to boldly go, to do things. In terms of that, that, that feeling of being divine, tell us a little bit more about that quote in terms of, in terms of what, why, you, uh, why you gave it to us as an inspiration. You know, we are all, we, we, you know, we are all concerned with a successful life. We have different definitions of it. Uh, happiness is uh, an, an, an impossible task to aim at because it's, you know, it's like a beautiful butterfly. However hard you try, it will never sit lightly upon your shoulder. Um, it's only when you're not trying that it will happen. It's like love. If you're trying to fall in love and you, you try, try to find the, your great love, you will never, ever, ever make it. It will only happen you know, as a byproduct of um, other things that you do. Uh, by the way, this, 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 this is the, the essence of ancient Athenian philosophy, whether you are a Platonist, uh, Aristotelian, Epicurean, uh, the idea of eudaimonia. Uh, where there are virtuous things that are virtuous independently of your wishes and your desires. Um, and like, for instance, you know, the, the work of a sculptor. And a sculptor cannot stop himself or herself from sculpting because they, will, they feel that they will, that they will die if, they, if, if this sculpture doesn't come out of the stone, right? And, and they're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for fame. They love money. They love fame, and they need the fame, and they need the money. But if they do it for the fame or the money, they're not good artists. I think that encapsulates my, you know, Star Trek, Sophocles, Shakespearean approach to life. Well, and also, and I, I mean, I'm sorry to try and deconstruct your personality in these ways, but I'm just looking at aspects, if you like, your, the, I mean, your virtues. I mean, because, I mean, you mentioned love. I mean, I, I do think that there is something romantic there's a sentimental element i mean you know whether it's kind of some of the music choices that you chose albinoni's ad adagio for strings i love the story of the anonymous woman um that was confronting the angry um pro-government deputy i mean maybe maybe tell us that but i mean I, I suppose does that also conform to quite a a romantic view of the world a romantic view of the struggle if you will a romantic but not stupidly unrealistic I believe in combining realism, hard facts, uh, with romanticism and ethics. Uh, if we can manage to do that, then life is worth living. Because you know, life, you know, there is so much. There are many, so many chores and so many disappointments in life. If we don't at least try to combine these elements, you know, of love, of romance, of poetry, of science, of you know, hard facts, you know, what's the point of it all? Um, you ask me to, to comment on this woman. Um, Back in 2011, as a result of the bankruptcy of Greece and the collapse of um, Greek society, effectively we had a Great Depression. We were in the in the clasps of the grapes of wrath, Greek style. In 2011, we had you know 100,000 people coming out on the street every night, having debates in Sydney Square opposite the Greek Parliament, and so on. And when the government was trying to introduce even more austerity uh, measures that were dictated to them by the creditors, they didn't even want. To vote for them themselves, uh, th there was a, a, a very strong picket line by thousands and thousands of people stopping the parliamentarians coming in. And of course, the, the riot police was there. There were riots. There was a lot of pushing and shoving. And I remember uh, right at the entrance of parliament, I was a member of the public. I was not a parliamentarian back then. Um, I could see these um, uh, deputies trying to squeeze in, each one of them uh, escorted by 20, 30 policemen. And there was this very... Um, very, very thin, um, frail-looking girl, girl, young woman, 
who had climbed up on the wall and she was about to fall off. And one of those parliamentarians, a famous parliamentarian, I won't mention his name, looked at her and said, who are you to tell me what I'm going to vote for and what I'm not going to vote for? And she looked at him and said, who do I need to be? And at that moment, I was struck by the softness of her power and you know the, the, the generosity of her spirit because she, she wasn't nasty to him. She just said, you know, who do I need to be in order to, for, my, for my views to matter? I have to tell you, when I read that, I, I thought that was quite a spine-tingling moment in terms of that, you know, just one of the greatest questions in terms of speaking truth unto power. Let's, let's move on because you describe yourself as a libertarian Marxist, and that is a fair, uh, Marxist, excuse me, and that's a fairly rare breed of, uh, of Marxist. I mean, for, for the audience, it would be great to, to get a working definition from you in, in terms of your worldview on, on libertarian Marxism. Well, let me say that by saying that, I have managed to enrage the vast majority of Marxists and the vast majority of libertarians who <laughs> consider me to be a total hypocrite. How can you be a libertarian and be a Marxist? And Marx saying, how can you be a Marxist and be one of those libertarians? For me, it's the only way of, the only way of being genuinely liberal or libertarian, doesn't matter, however you want to describe it. The only way of cherishing freedom is by detesting power and detesting the power both of the state and of Jeff Bezos, of Google, you know, of ExxonMobil, um, of the little despot who terrorizes, um, you know, a woman employee. Uh, in other words, the power of capital over labor. Uh, and the only way of being a genuine socialist, a believer in freedom, because socialism began in the 19th century as an emancipatory project, uh, is, to, is to cherish freedom. And you cannot cherish freedom and at the same time you want, you know, uh, the Politburo to, to tell the commissar to tell you what to do when you're working in a factory somewhere in, in the Urals. Um, therefore, for me, it, it, it's a no-brainer. You've got to be a libertarian to be a Marxist and vice versa. It's not easy. Uh, and there are many, many interesting questions, and I try to answer some of those in, in my latest book, Another Now. But, but before we go on to Another Now, because I do want to talk about that, but, but, but a lot of I mean, you talk about it's not being easy, and, and a lot of your critics jump on that. They'll say... Look, this guy, he's he's a great talker, he's a great, great to listen to, but he's the classic example of power without responsibility, that actually it all doesn't add up, that actually this is a lack of staying power. You know all of this, right? In terms of what what your critics will say in terms of their rebuttal. That does it bother you? Is is there anything in that that you think actually, I mean, you talked about doubt earlier on, but I mean, or is that actually what you need to know that you're making progress is that the powerful are listening. You know, I spent decades being an academic and uh, therefore I was spoiled into thinking that it is possible uh, to have a discussion and a clash over arguments and positions. Uh, instead, the moment I entered the world of politics, um, you know, it was not soccer, it was rugby. Uh, <laughs> suddenly, you know, <laughs> it was a contact sport. It was, you know, I was being attacked as a person I instead of having my opinions and my views attacked and my policies. But um, let me answer that charge by simply saying that when we met in 2015, um, I was uh, a minister at the time of finance. I was uh, and remain a left winger. You know, the views that I'm expressing to you now were the same ones I was expressing back then. But if you look at who I had working with me, 
uh, you'll see that the, 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 the little power I had came along with a lot of you know, conservative responsibility. I had people like Larry Summers. I had people like you know Lord Norman, Norman Lamont. For I was going to say you've got you've got I mean you've got quite a fan club, eclectic. The chief economist of the, of Deutsche Bank. I had you know Jeff Sachs, not exactly a left winger back then. I mean he yeah you know, I think I pushed him in, in that in the left wing direction since then. But the reason why I surrounded myself with those conservative stalwarts was because the job I was going to do in the ministry was not to bring in socialism; it was to liberate. A whole people from debtors' prison, and then you know once they're liberated, then they could have they can make choices regarding whether they want you know to move into in the direction of uh, a more lefty approach to life, uh, a more conservative approach to life. Um, that was my task. My task was not to uh, put into place my own political economy or philosophy. It was a liberating um, purpose, and I think that that was quite a responsible thing to do. And you see, one of the reasons why the Troika hated me was because I was surrounded by all these right-wingers, and what I was saying to them made perfect sense to a Wall Street bankruptcy lawyer, not just to left-wingers. Mm. I mean, and it was such an, I, I guess, a moment of extremes in terms of the financial crisis. I mean, we're in another moment of extremes in terms of the COVID crisis, in terms of how the pandemic has evolved your worldview what, what what are you thinking in terms of what's happening right now in the world? I differ from many a commentator in thinking that the pivotal moment of the 21st century so far is not 2020, but it's 2008. 2008 was our generation's great moment, the 1929 moment, when financialized capitalism went pear-shaped. And immediately after that, the remedies tried out by the central banks, the G20, and of course the governments, and especially the, you know, the European Union on the one hand and the United States federal government on the other. Those remedies um, fixed the problem of the broken financial system, uh, but the problem metastasized, shifted onto the rest of capitalism, where effectively corporations were zombified. Uh, the whole financial system became utterly dependent uh, on uh, public money printed by central banks in, you know, tsunamis after tsunami. Mm. So, so what does COVID do to that? Well, what, what COVID did? You see, between 2008 and 2020, just before COVID-19 paid its visit, already we were in a long period of stagnation where you had a decoupling between the financial markets that were doing exceptionally well, better than ever, from capitalism, where you had the lowest level of investment in the history of capitalism relatively to the amount of cash that was around. And that's what caused negative yields, negative interest rates, uh, pension funds uh, suffering, the middle class disappearing, and so on. So that was the situation before COVID-19 comes. Then the pandemic hits. And what do governments do? The same old techniques since 2008, Okay, only boosted magnificently. So what does that do? It makes the financial markets even more bloated than they were prior to the pandemic, while depressing investment and depressing the creation of good quality jobs or the, the rate at which they are being depleted um, was lessened. Uh, so a bad thing became far, far worse. And now we, if you add to that the major boost 
of digitization that you know the lockdown has created. Now you have Jeff, Jeff Bezos suddenly making eighty billion dollars more since the the beginning of the of the lockdown of the pandemic, uh, and you have this massive shift of resources of economic energy, if you want, from those who actually do stuff to those who control the levers of digitization and the financial sector. So. Obviously, you, you've taken aim at Bezos over over, um, over Black Friday. And let's turn to the States because, you know, you might want to pick up on him. But I'm also interested in your view of the of the recent Biden victory. I mean, you've written of the of the centrist delusion um, that, um, that that actually that, you know, this kind of consensus of the powerful misses misses the point. Pick, pick up the story for us. Well, let me just make it clear that uh, if I were in the United States and I voted in a swing state, I would have voted for Biden. So let's make this clear, right? I'm very glad to see the back of Donald Trump. But at the same time, I'm not going to indulge in wishful thinking. This was a terrible result. It was a terrible result because this thin Biden victory, he won the White House but didn't win Congress. Uh, effectively, what it does, it um, liberates Biden from any commitment that he had to the left. And, and why is this a bad thing? Because the left had the right policies. Uh, a serious investment in Medicare, a serious investment in the green transition, a serious inv- investment in infra- infrastructure, in cancelling uh, student debt, in moving in a direction that would effectively take back the lost souls that were lured by Trumpism. Mm. Now, uh, Biden was never interested in doing any of that stuff. Uh, He never missed an opportunity when he was a senator or when he was a vice president to side with Wall Street, with big tech, with all those people who are responsible in the end for Trumpism. Not that he was a sympathizer of Trump, Uh, but he was part of a system that affected and implemented the policies that created space for Trumpism. Now, in the next two years, we're going to have a slump in the United States. That's quite clear. Who is going to benefit from that? Trumpism. Trump has lost. Trumpism has triumphed. The Republican Party will be more Trumpist than ever. It will be solid. The left will fragment. The Biden centrists will turn against They're already turning against the left, blaming them for not winning more seats in the House of Reps. Uh, so in that sense, you know, I mean, I would have loved a Bernie Sanders presidency, but let's say this is this was never on the cards because of the Democratic Party that would never allow that. But I would have enjoyed a Biden landslide because that would have meant that the, uh, the deal between Sanders and Biden would have been um, feasible. So when he says, when President-elect Biden talks about let's give each other a chance, the, the idea of actually trying to get bring things back together. I mean, do you just get the sense that somebody's got to win? I mean, is the nature here that there is a struggle, there are opposing camps? I mean, you, you are, you know, I mean, as, as a polemicist, some, well, I, you know, whether you see yourself as that, so people would certainly characterize you as that in terms of being in a in a camp where one idea needs to prevail. I mean, is there no consensus as possible or does this does it require some form of struggle that delivers some form of victory as the way that we evolve i guess to that star trek future but it already does i mean there is one side that constantly keeps winning you know warren buffett 
put it magnificently, and you know, he's not exactly a left winger. He's not exactly a member of my side of politics. He came out and said, you know, um, the the class war is real, and we won it. My side won it, and he even complained that they won it too triumphantly because, you know, um, he's a smart man and he can see that capital took all the spoils, which means labor didn't have enough money to keep buying the stuff that the capitalists are churning out. So, you know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates and so on, they're not socialists. They're smart, rich, ultra-rich people who understand that, you know, if you wipe the floor clean with the working class, with the middle class, you know, who's going to buy your stuff? You know, I remember watching the construction of an Apple uh, build, uh, factory in Texas years ago when I used to live there, right? And it was built by robots. Robots would be working and are working in it, making, you know, uh, laptops. But who's going to buy the dumb stuff? But, but I mean, in this view, because I want to come on to your book in a second, but in, in this view, I mean, there are certain people that have really got, you know, got you going over the last couple of months, and Bezos is clearly one of them. Would would you say that a world without Amazon would be a better world? Or is it that you just seek to reform the Colossus? Well, let, let, let's uh, be clear on something. I don't have anything against Jeff Bezos. I think he's a very smart man. I, I think he deserves to be rich because he's um, a far better um, you know, entrepreneur than I am or you are. Um, it's just that I have no doubt that his 200 plus billion dollars is not the result of his entrepreneurship or his smartness. You know, he could have a 20 billion, 30 billion, the 200 and so billion that he has amassed is a sign of the fact that we don't live in, even in capitalism. We live in something which is close, closer to feudalism with a lot of technology, which I call techno-feudalism. So um, if our movement, the Progressive International and DiEM25, if we have targeted Amazon, it is uh, symbolically. Uh, it's not just Amazon. Uh, there is also you know, Facebook. If you think of these platform companies, they are the companies that should be on the radar screen and should be targeted by liberals. Because when I was reading, you know, Adam Smith and Friedrich von Hayek and you know all the greats of um, the liberal economic tradition, the reason why they embraced capitalism was because of the idea of competition that forces capitalists to, good, to do good to society. But they, the problem with Amazon and Google and Netflix and so on is not just that they're monopolists. It is not just that they are usurping competitive forces. They own the whole bloody thing. So the moment you enter into Facebook... The social dilemma. The moment you fire, exactly. The moment you enter into Facebook, you enter into a world owned by Facebook. They own, it's like you know walking down the high street or main street in America, you know, and having the tarmac, the benches, the street lamps, the the walls around you, the shops, every single shop, right? The houses, the sky, the air you breathe, belonging to one company. Yeah, that is not Adam Smith. That is not liberal capitalism. That's techno feudalism. So mm. you know. We targeted Amazon because we had to start, to start somewhere. And given the despicable conditions in which workers in Amazon work, given the ridiculous um, manner in which uh, wealth accumulates while small businesses are being destroyed left, right, and center, given the immense footprint on the environment by a company which is presenting itself as a greenie, I, th I thought it was. We thought it was a good idea to start targeting Amazon. 
we're going to get onto the book, and I'll I'll save my I'll save my follow up as my last question. But another now, this is the alternative narrated through three characters rooted in uh, aspects of your own thinking: um, a Marxist, uh, feminist, a libertarian, ex banker, and a maverick technology. Pick pick up the story for us in terms of in terms of what readers can expect. Well, what readers can expect is my attempt, my feeble attempt to answer the question: Okay, you don't like capitalism, mate? What's the alternative? An answer, an answer to that, I never had. I don't think any leftist has ever had. Marx didn't have, even try to come up with one. And I think that if we're going to be honest with people, we have to provide an answer. Uh, is, is it worth a candle? <laughs> In other words, the whole idea of a, an alternative to capitalism. Uh, and so, if I, in a sense, the, the book contains my blueprint of how a democratic liberal socialism could work um, with the technology we have today, with the human frailties that we all share. Um, and uh, because, you know, it would be too megalomaniac, even for me, I have to say, to try to write it down as a blueprint, uh, because I disagree with myself on many of the aspects of what, what such a world should look like. I created characters that would have a conversation with them, you know, with so, one another. So these are, these are personas? These are people that I've met. Um, each one of them contains three or four or five people that I've met. They contain part of my own thinking. But what I did was, you know, by having a neoliberal banker turned economist with a, a feisty Marxist feminist of a different generation fight it out with, between themselves, you know, I, I, I could actually take a seat, a back seat, and watch them um, almost. It was as if I was disembodied from this conversation. You know, watch the evolution of this debate. Uh, and, you know, by throwing in some twists and turns with a little bit of science fiction, um, because it is a science fiction story, um, I, you know, effectively I allowed myself to, to express both what I believe would be a feasible liberal democratic socialism and also my doubts about it. Right. So you created, in a way, you created this kind of state of nature for yourself in terms of different people to, to investigate how it might change, I guess. So that's in- why I love science fiction. Because yeah, science, I mean, the opportunity to do that. It's the archaeology of the future, as uh, Jameson said once. And so th- this is, you know, I wish I had double the time because there's so much I want to talk to you about. But let's, in a way, this is a bit like a kind of um, nativity play because we've got three wise economists that I've interviewed, one after the other. So I've, I've interviewed uh, Pippa Malgren, who was uh, George Bush's special assistant, um, Jim O'Neill, who you'll know. Um, and what I would describe is that um, I think Pippa was like an optimist. You know, the markets will save us. Um, Jim was a positivist in the sense that actually look at what the world has done in terms of, you know, sort of cracking into the virus in terms of vaccines that have come through through innovation and uh, enterprise. And in terms of trying to sort of think about, you know, th- the three economists in terms of how I would start to think about Yanis is that where we have, I thought I was interviewing somebody that was extremely determined and solid in their view of the world. But actually I found somebody who's, who's, who's actually got lots of doubt, lots of ideas that are potentially conflicting, but an, but an idea about a future, which is manifested in things like the interest in science fiction. When you look at that future um, and you look at, the to-do list of the world. How does that leave you feeling? Here we are at the end of one year about to begin another. You've got a new political party. You've got 
a new chapter, I, I guess, ahead. A final thought about that future from your perspective and, and as you see it. Allow me to put forward the uh, assessment. The third way. <laughs> no, no, the assessment. The, the three of us that you have interviewed are three manifestations of modernity's defeat. Because the optimist who believes the markets always work, that's Eva in my book, who gets her comeuppance in 2008 with the collapse of the financial sector. You know, Jim O'Neill, the empiricist, uh, that's closer to the technologist Costa in my book, who believes that in the end technology and you know, statistics and so on are going to uh, see us through. Uh, and that has also crashed and burned. And also, I am another form of failure because I represent the left-wing tradition that ended up with the gulag, uh, with you know the defeat of social democracy, my defeat in 2015. But you know, out of this, um, if you want, combination, synthesis of defeats, humanity may be able to produce um, a success. Not a triumph, but a success. And we must, because we are facing serious challenges like climate change. We have um, huge imbalances in inequalities. We have, uh, you know, social discontent brewing, uh, Trumpism, modism in India, Salviniism in Italy, and so on. And it is imperative that we, you know, we combine our, we, we, we you know, we share notes from our different defeats, and you know, push for a solution or a series of solutions, you know, that uh, do not just follow the path of least of least resistance. There is a lot to do, but you know, whichever point in time you go back to in history. It was always thus. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you very much. I'm sat here thinking about this. I think that, you know, we've had such a, an uncompromising message in some respects, one that has got so much positivity about it as well, though, in terms of where things might go. Um, and I guess one that confirms um, your reputation as someone who always seeks um, to speak the truth as he sees it and a power of challenge, part of a manifesto for change and a belief that from the depth of winter might come an invincible summer from deeds that are done for the hell of it. It's a view that has raised the volume of Yanis's voice in the world and strengthened his view on how we deliver another now. Join me again for the next Changemakers. See you next time.